Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It does appear that the unrest has been dying down in cities across the nation, Paul. For the most part, anecdotally, we have heard that protests have been peaceful, although there has been an element that has come in and been incredibly violent and destructive in cities across the board, particularly in New York. Right now, to bring us in about the legal implications and what can be done from an executive power perspective with the threat of bringing in military troops, as well as on the local level with the national Guard and just how you deploy your cops. Noah Feldman joining us, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. Noah, uh, Professor Feldman, I'm curious about your take on President Trump's declaration that he would send military troops into the large cities if states and cities did not get their act together. Does he have the power to do that? Well, like a lot of declarations that President Trump has planned to make but never actually made, we first have to you know, keep our heads about us and remember that he may actually not do this. It may just be more symbolism than practice. If he does choose to do it, he would have to have specific statutory authority. And the reason for that is that there's a law, which a lot of people have probably heard of, called the Posse Comitatus Act. And that law says that the only way the president can deploy federal troops to execute the laws and enforce the laws is when Congress has specifically authorized him to do so. So the basic framework is there has to be a law that says he can. The law that the president said he would deploy is a very old law, originally passed in 1807, called the Insurrection Act. And I think reasonable lawyers could differ about it. But my own view is that one part of that act almost certainly would allow the president to deploy troops uh, to the cities if, and it's a big if, if he could determine that they were unable to enforce the law, federal law, on their own. So, Professor, how does so that's active troops? How about National Guard? Isn't the National hasn't the National Guard in the past been deployed for some of these uh, types of operations? Yes, and in fact, it's deployed in lots of places now. And here's where you know things get a little technical. National Guard troops are in the first instance called out by the state governors. That is to say, they work for the governor. The governor gives the orders, and they're arranged by state. When the president designates them as federal forces. They can be turned into federal troops, and then the president would command them. And that hasn't happened yet here, and that's actually extraordinarily unusual. To be technical, I was actually (laughs) reading up yesterday on the actual process of getting military troops into local areas. I'm speaking as somebody who lives in New York City, and I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how there would even be coordination between the military, potentially the National Guard, and then the police force, and how that would all be rolled out. I mean, is there any precedent, given the fact that this is an 1807 law that we're citing here? Well, with the request of state and local officials, federal troops were called out in the Los Angeles riots in the early 1990s. Those are the, the, Rodney, the, the riots that broke out after uh, the brutal attack on Rodney King and then after uh, the police were acquitted. So it has happened. And if there's consent by state and local authorities or a request by state and local authorities, then it's possible to coordinate all of the different uh, figures that you are thinking about. I mean, another example for New Yorkers, which did not involve an invocation of, the, of this particular act, 
but which involved coordination, was the post-9-11 arrangements. You know, everyone who lived in New York then at the time, as, as I did for some of that time, remembers that there were many, many, many different authorities and troops and people who were uh, deployed in, in lower Manhattan. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it is possible to coordinate. It can be done. It's a very serious undertaking, but it can be done. So, Professor, just today, Secretary of Defense Esper says that he does not support invoking the Insurrection Act. How important is that statement there? That seems pretty important. I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty important. Um, obviously, the buck stops with the president, not the Secretary of Defense. But since the idea would be to deploy troops, you need the Secretary of Defense to be involved in it. So I would read that as a signal from the Trump administration that they're probably not going to do this, that as, again, as very characteristic of President Trump, he wanted to have the moment on the cameras where he said, I'm prepared to call out the troops, but didn't actually want to do that. I mean, I think one of the profound insights of the Trump era is that um, the president believes that he can get most of the bang for his buck by saying something without actually subsequently having to do it. And then the rest of us, and this is partly my job, run around explaining, is it lawful? It might not be lawful, and going through all the details, <laughs> just like we're all doing right now. And in fact, he never intended to do it in the first place. And so, you know, this is not the first or the second or the third or the fifth time that this has happened. So, you know, it's a, it raises a real question. I, I feel that our job is still to explain to people what the law is. So I think we're doing the right thing. But we should always add that caveat that, in fact, it may not happen. And in, here, the, the statement by the Secretary of Defense hints to me that it probably won't. I'm wondering, the altercation that has become very controversial with protesters being cleared away uh, for President Trump to walk over to a church across the street, a lot of people have been pointing that to unfair suppression of First Amendment rights, people who basically uh, were violently removed in order for the president to walk in that way. What's your take on that? You know, I watched it on... Um I watched it on television like a lot of other people, and I don't have more information than what I saw on the screen in terms of what actually happened. So that's a first caveat. But what I saw looked like um, what may have been unconstitutional violation of the free speech rights of peaceful protesters who were in what's called a public forum. That is a park, you know, a place that's open to the public and which had not been closed off for any particular reason, and who were then summarily moved off. There might be some circumstances where safety requires it, where it's constitutionally permissible to move protesters. I mean, that, there are sometimes circumstances when the president's got to go somewhere, and he really has to go there. There could be circumstances where protesters might have to be re requested to move or, or made to move. This, watching the video, did not seem like such a circumstance. Right. And so, you know, at a minimum, I would say it violated the spirit of the First Amendment very clearly, and it may also have violated the letter of the law. Noah Feldman, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate uh, your commentary. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. 
We did get that ADP report out earlier today that showed a much better than expected or less terrible uh, report than people were expecting when it comes to job losses for the month of May. A big question, though, is the composition of job losses as well as what may come if the economy doesn't recover in a V, as many people don't expect that it will. Joining us now to discuss is Yelena Shugetkova. She is a senior U.S. economist with Bloomberg Economics. You had a report that I found fascinating about how the bulk of the job losses so far have been blue-collar workers, but that could change in the upcoming months. Can you give us a sense of how? Yes. Hi, Lisa. So as you pointed out, uh, we all know that, uh, you know, in terms of uh, overall job losses, we may see uh, smaller job losses uh, coming up. And uh, the ADP report this morning was uh, uh, just one piece of a puzzle. The question, the big question to us is how much this weakness that we observed uh, in March and April is going to spread across different sectors of the economy and across different roles in those sectors that were already hit hard. So, for example, if uh, you see um, there was a lot of uh, layoffs uh, among blue-collar jobs in the sectors such as leisure and hospitality and uh, accommodation, uh, those sectors did not see um, a comparable decline in terms of white-collar uh, positions. So we expect that if we don't see much of an improvement in those sectors' uh, uh, activity, that some of these white-collar jobs are at risk of uh, being um, lost. So another thing that we looked at uh, in our report uh, that we published uh, recently is that uh, a lot of uh, uh, the impact uh, is coming from the industries that were already hit hard. As I mentioned, leisure and hospitality, trade, retail trade in particular. So how this sector's weakness is, impacted, is impacting demand uh, for other industries, services, and products. And we found out that uh, as many as 6 million jobs are at risk uh, on that front. So, Yelena, looking at today's ADP jobs numbers, came in at 2.76 million jobs lost, and the consensus was 9 million. That seems like a big miss to me. Is this something strange in the numbers this month, or was the jobs market is the jobs market maybe less bad than we had anticipated? Uh, less bad is probably what uh, you would like to call it. Uh, so, the improvement was expected. The question is uh, to what extent. So we already saw some improvement in terms of uh, the claims data uh, last week. Uh, continuing claims declined for the first time in uh, since February, essentially, and uh, tomorrow we will see if that trend continues. So uh, it, it was pretty obvious that the labor market is uh, starting to, to recover uh, to some extent. Uh, again, the big question is how, how much it spreads across different uh, roles and industries and how much loss in aggregate demand will impact uh, the job market going forward. So you brought up the ADP report uh, this morning, but if you look at the details, we see declines all across different sectors. Financial activities declined that was not that different from the previous month's decline. Uh, professional and business services. And this is what we found uh, is at uh, highest risk uh, going forward. So uh, 
Will we see consumers continue to spend at the same rate? Probably not, because uh, there was a lot of income loss uh, over this uh, 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 last few months. So I think, unfortunately, uh, despite all this uh, relatively positive news, uh, there's still a lot of jobs at uh, uh, risk uh, in the next few months. Yelena, I was really struck by just how better than expected it was or less bad than expected it was, the ADP report. And I'm wondering if this tells us something about either the pace of our hiring, which is a really fuzzy metric that doesn't have a lot of hard data around it, or uh, another measure that perhaps analysts are getting wrong. Or I wonder if the takeaway is it is just incredibly difficult to pinpoint with any accuracy what's going on right now in the economy because the job losses have been so swift and so severe that when you're talking millions, it's throwing a dart at a dartboard. Is that the takeaway here? Uh, I think you are uh, quite right, uh, Lisa. So like, think about what we did before the crisis, right? We were talking about a uh, difference in a forecast. Uh, in terms of thousands, but now we talk uh, in, in terms of millions. And uh, obviously today's report, uh, ADP report, is uh, one step in the right direction. And again, I mentioned uh, conti- uh, claims data uh, is something that we really take a close uh, look at as well. And that is also uh, showing we are at a turning point. So uh, payrolls report will we'll probably show a smaller decline in terms of uh, uh, the number of jobs from the establishment survey. But one thing that uh, will worsen in, in May, and it seems to be a consensus view as well, that the unemployment rate will get to the levels last uh, seen uh, during the Great Depression. So we are probably going to see the unemployment uh, rate uh, close right. to 20%. Right. So on that front, it's probably not that much of an improvement. And again, the breadth of job losses is what yep. really worries me at this point. Elena, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts on the economy. Elena Shulietieva, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, giving us her thoughts on the jobs market. Again, better than expected ADP uh, jobs numbers today. We're going to have jobless claims uh, tomorrow, uh, Thursday, as always, and then Friday, the jobs number from the federal government. Lisa, I'm looking at my screen right here. I've got the two-year Treasury yield at 0.19%. It's up about three basis points today, but we're really talking about, you know, zero interest rates effectively on the short end of the curve here to get a sense of kind of what that means near-term and long-term for the markets. We're really fortunate to have Chris Ailman. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer for the California State Teachers Retirement System. That's a big one, $239 billion under management uh, based in uh, Sacramento. They take care of all the teachers' retirements, uh, so they are all over the market. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. What is your thought of kind of when you look at the yield curve here and you see the short end of the curve darn near zero percent what does that mean to you well paul good to talk to you and first let me say on behalf of all the regular listeners of which i am a part i am sad to see the paul and lisa team separated but exactly we are too (laughs) um you know it's uh we're back to where we were in 2010 and 11 where it's uh zero interest rates and i don't think it's for a short term. I think this is for a long term because we're going to have a very bumpy recovery. You know, the Fed actually talking about manipulating the, the curve is just shocking language to me. But it shows, remember back with QE, 
uh, one, two, and three, we said the Fed was out of tools. And each of those uh, quantitative easings was less effective. I think the the Fed has used all their ammo at this point, um, and they're really uh, uh, not able to do much. So for investors, again, unfortunately, it's going to be another couple of years, I think, where you're not going to get much return out of fixed income at all. But you are going to see opportunities because the Fed is pumping money into the system and saying risk on. Now, that said, I don't expect corporate earnings to improve uh, very much at all. We've got some serious damage to this market. Chris, this is the conundrum, and you have a front row seat to this conundrum on both sides because you oversee the second biggest U.S. public pension with uh, $240 billion of assets under management, and you have to earn income in order to meet your obligations at a time when interest rates are this low, when corporate bond yields are near record lows uh, because of what the Federal Reserve has done, and with a not that great outlook economically for some of these companies, do you feel like you're being push to take risks that you're not comfortable with, given the valuations? We were faced with that challenge, Lisa, back in uh, 09, and we made the uh, very strong decision not to take additional risk. And I would encourage people not to try and do that again. Now, for institutional investors, we've got other investment opportunities. We've got real estate. Uh, surprising during this crisis, uh, leases have been strong. Uh, our real estate team has said that our building's Uh, The rent payments are being made, so we're very comfortable, and those are good income returns. Infrastructure, even though it's been slow, that's a great place to to earn a cash flow return. But I think when you look at endowments and a lot of the pension plans, we're very low in our allocation, our percentage allocation to fixed income. If you're in a 401k, you're in tough luck because you don't have a lot of options. You really, you know, the traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio at 40% is going to be pretty darn close to a zero, maybe a 3% return, uh, which isn't going to perform. Uh, And 401k investors don't have a lot of other options, so they will probably have to pile on risk. And that may be part of the reason we're seeing money flowing into this equity market uh, at this ridiculous level. Chris, you say real estate. Very interesting at a time when people are talking about offices becoming somewhat obsolete with the work from home movement, when people are wondering what the future of large cities will be. How do you think about real estate investments as an opportunity right now? Where? Well, it is not a great opportunity to come in and buy because uh, things have not repriced much. Where equity, you know, back in March, equity was down uh, 20%. Now we're almost back to flat. Real estate is going to look across that, that, that valley in recovery and basically say, well, our buildings should be priced about where they were. Uh, you're seeing that in, in uh, retail at, at the single-family home level. And we're just not seeing a lot of transactions at the office. Uh, in the office market, you're right. It will cause people to rethink how you structure and how densely you pack an office. Um, but I think that real estate is still going to be strong. Retail has definitely been harmed. Uh, The big malls, which are owned by a concentrated few companies, uh, the big malls will come back, but they are uh, very damaged by this uh, four-month, five-month gap of activity, and it may be longer. Um, But I think industrial, um, office, apartment continues to be uh, very strong areas in that market. Again, I wouldn't go rushing out to buy because prices aren't uh, cheap. Uh, But if you own and you can build to own, um, 
then you're going to get a, a steady lease income that's a nice return on your portfolio. And we have seen that through this cycle. Hey, Chris, we've, we've had uh, some good fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington, fairly bipartisan here. Um, and I guess the, the next one uh, that people are looking at or the market's looking at is this uh, uh, maybe a $3 trillion uh, plan put back, uh, put out by the, uh, the House. A lot of that or some of that is going to include fiscal stimulus for states and local municipalities. How important is it for these states to get some support here? Well, Paul, I'd correct. I very seldom correct you, but uh, you said uh, a fair amount of stimulus. I'd say a ridiculous amount of stimulus. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is it is two times what was done in 2008. Basically, the government has socialized losses and is bailing out the stock market and bailing out corporations, trying to help individuals. I mean, like we you've heard the stories, anecdotal stories over and over about people who now have a bigger paycheck by staying at home than they do by working. The idea that we have to give a bonus for somebody to go back to work to get off basically welfare is a shocking position. But the question about the states and the cities and the counties, um, they do need help. Now, it all depends on where they get their revenue from. Uh, Now, I'm going to pick a a state like Florida or even New York City, where you get a lot of income from hotel occupancy tax. So you need visitors uh, that's been zero for four months, and it may be very low for, I think, until the end of the year. So they're going to be hurting. Now, if you're a state that, that survives on property taxes, you're going to be in good shape. Uh, income taxes obviously will have taken a hit and are going to see a decline. Um, our state uh, in California uh, does survive on income tax as well as sales tax, which is lower, but all this stimulus People have been saving. The average person has been saving a lot of that stimulus money. So I think you will see a rebound in, in retail sales when you can get out and move around. But if you're a, a state or a city or a county that's been re- uh, trying to survive on that hotel occupancy tax, yeah. uh, retail sales, some car sales, uh, you've got a gap in your budget that, that yes, you need help filling. And now with an added stress of the uh, police, fire, safety, overtime due to the riots, yeah, um, it stretched their budgets paper thin. Chris Aylman, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we'll have to have you back again. Uh, we love speaking with you. Chris Aylman, Chief Investment Officer at California State Teachers Retirement System with $240 billion of assets under management, who is before his time riding his bicycle. This is Bloomberg <laughs> Markets. Bloomberg Opinion, informed perspectives, and expert data-driven commentary on breaking news. Well, the big social media companies, most notably Facebook and Twitter, are grappling with the concept of free speech and what they should do to manage or regulate the speech that is on their platforms. Are they media companies with all the obligations associated with being a media company, or are they simply technologically uh, technology platforms for third-party content? Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us to kind of talk about this issue. Tim, so give us a sense about Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg is getting a lot of criticism by saying, hey, it's not our job to police free speech. What's the status? Well, you know, it it has come to the fore right now, Paul, because we have protests in the street over the George Floyd killing. Um, uh, We're still in the grips of a pandemic. People are hurting. And uh, recently, President Trump took to Twitter uh, to essentially say if, you know, if the protests can 
continued, uh, he, he was prepared to unleash the military on the streets of the United States. And um, uh, he had been on Twitter prior to that, uh, making false claims about voter fraud. Twitter was prompted by those posts to put warning labels and fact checks on them. Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook uh, demurred. Uh, and Zuckerberg's view on this is a classic and well-regarded free speech position, which is uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, you know, we we have to let everyone, everyone have their voice. The problem with that perspective, because there is an exception to a an absolutist approach to free speech, is you know you can't go into a theater and scream fire if it's crowded because you will endanger people doing so. And in that circumstance, their safety outweighs your free speech. This whole debate has come home to roost this week at Facebook in a very deep way. At the end of last week and this week, um, employees there are staging virtual walkouts. Um, Zuckerberg has met with outside civil rights groups to talk through it, and he's holding on to the position he's maintained. Can you talk about the difference between Facebook's approach and Twitter's approach and the rationale for each? Well, you know, I think I think a little of it is is they're also in the good company of of Silicon Valley uh, magical thinkers. I think who have <laughs> always believed that the machines they've built are forces for good at, in an absolute way. And of course, they've been great sources for innovation, job creation, growth in the economy. Um, but they're not friction free. There's obviously downsides that we're well aware of around platforms, specifically information-based platforms, getting gamed. And and I think really the 2016 election was the first reckoning in, in, in this new era for them. And I think the, the owners of the platforms, the managers of the platforms have been wrestling with how do you police uh, information in a way that the platform isn't being abused and it isn't endangering others. Twitter in over the last week has decided to take a more aggressive stance and say we will we will mark tweets that we think are false or abusive. Uh, Facebook is deciding not to, but it'll be interesting to see how long Facebook could can hold on to that position. And I don't think it's just because they're free free speech advocates. I think it's because they don't want to get regulated as a news platform. That's kind of where I want to go, Tim. Give us a sense. Uh, you know, President Trump was talking about maybe regulating somehow some of these social media platforms. Kind of where are we in terms of that regulatory oversight uh, for some of these big platforms? Well, it's still, you know, it's still um, uh, up in the air. There, there's a lot of lobbying and jousting going on around this in Washington. Uh, the irony of President Trump saying that uh, he might try to change FCC regulations so these platforms have to police themselves more adequately we would probably result in people like President Trump not being able to write anything because he's one of the most serial abusers of both the fact pattern and people's goodwill on social media platforms. Um, I think uh, <clears throat> there's no question that that particularly Twitter and Facebook that they that they a lot of news crosses those sites. They've put a lot of newspapers out of business because people have turned to them as alternatives as news sources. And I think um, newspapers and, and, and radio stations and television stations have historically uh, been held to a higher standard about how they vet what gets published 
on their pages. And, and I think that's coming to the social media platforms too. Tim, this is something we could be talking about for hours. Uh, Just to wrap things together and quickly here, I'm wondering, this has been a pattern at Facebook. Even some of their internal analysts have said that they foment divide, division uh, in, in the way that they operate, and yet they have chosen not to do anything about it. Do you think this is the tipping point that will force Mark Zuckerberg's hand? I, I do think it's the tipping point, Lisa, because it's not simply that um, they won't do anything about division and polarization that occurs on Facebook, but part of its business model actually thrives on people's attraction to going into forums like this and, and getting into pugnacious confrontations. It's actually a, a feature of the site, not a bug. And, and if they're going to take that on, they have to really think of what kind of business model they want going forward. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for being with us. It's always enlightening. Tim O'Brien is a senior columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, talking about his column on this issue about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook reaching this tipping point with staff members staging walkouts to protest Mark Zuckerberg's approach to the issue. Although, Paul, it is interesting to see markets are taking this the other way Mm -hmm. uh, with Facebook shares doing better than Twitter as they take opposite stances. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.